Ian Stevenson is Professor of Publishing at University College London. He worked in publishing for over 30 years at such publishers as Longman, Macmillan, Wiley, and the Stationery Office, and was on the Council of the Publishers Association. He founded the environmental publisher Bellhaven Press, and his current research is centered upon the application of new technology in publishing and the history of communication. He's just written a book called Bookmakers, British Publishing in the 20th Century. Welcome to the Bibliophile. <laughs> Thank you. This book is a very entertaining look at a very entertaining industry. Your take on, what, probably about 30, 40 different publishing houses. Perhaps what we could do here is to work our way through this list from the perspective of, uh, of a book collector who's interested in, first of all, innovations that the various publishing houses may have introduced, and also uh, particular series or particular designers that they would have employed to uh, produce their books in ways that were successful or perhaps not so successful. Okay, uh, uh, interesting approach. I think the period covered by my book is the period 1900 to 1995, and that's very deliberate because 1900 saw the introduction of the Net Book Agreement, which regulated the price of books, and 1995 saw its demise. The Net Book Agreement yeah, it was a, a level playing field, field, so that a large bookseller would not have an advantage over a small bookseller exactly. for buying in bulk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Books could be published non-net. Most school books were very first Net Book was Alfred Marshall's Principles of Economics by Macmillan. Which would be a very good book to track down, I would think, yeah, as, a, yeah, as a collector. Yeah, yeah, much sought after, both for its importance for, to economists, but also because of its book history importance. The idea of key personalities and key innovations, I would say that the first person one should consider is William Heinemann, who really, in my view, is the first modern publisher. Heinemann's a very interesting man because he's an outsider. Until Heinemann came... The book business was absolutely dominated by dynastic publishing houses like Longman, like Murray, who were effectively late 18th century, early 19th century partnerships. Macmillan arrived in the middle of the century. They were booksellers, and it could be said they were outsiders, but I don't think they were in the way that Heinemann was. Heinemann, his name suggests mm -hmm. his German antecedents. He was actually born in England. Multilingual. Yeah, he, he, he spoke at least four languages. He was very European-oriented. He was very interested in the European book trade. And his main contribution... Sorry. Yeah, yeah. This is the, the problems of a new building. Yes, but, yes, uh, OK. Gentlemen. We'll talk in between the, uh, the <laughs> drilling here. Yeah. <laughs> Heinemann's main contribution was he put the three-volume novel to death. Three-volume novel, which was the mainstay of the fiction trade, was really a device to allow the circulating libraries who charged for borrowing books to get the maximum out of their clientele. And it really was a dead format by the 1880s. Now, it would be wrong to say that Heinemann was the first person to criticise it, but Heinemann introduced a very young man. He set his business up with only a small amount of capital that he borrowed from his father, uh, who was a banker. And he spent half his capital on paying an advance to Hall Cain. Um, Took a big risk, didn't he? Very big yes. risk. You know, Hall Cain was the Dan Brown of his day, uh, a very successful novelist. But the big risk he took was to publish the second book he published from Hall Cain, The Manxman, as one volume in six-shilling format. 
and for a collector that would be Hawking is not much collected these days it's a pity because I think he's an interesting writer that really is the book that marked the end of the three volume novel as a commercial format what would be a really good example of the of the three volume novel well a lot of well known fiction Wilkie Collins published in the three volumes mm-hmm. for instance I'm not an expert in the three volume novel sure. I tend to find them dull but Margaret Oliphant is a great three volume author but it really was holding back the development of literature and publishing because they were expensive mm. it was a class thing as well oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well in fact they were they were published only to be borrowed rather than to be bought Mudies and Boots and the other circulating libraries were the main customers very few individuals would pay um, a three volume novel was anywhere from 18 shillings to 36 shillings which was a, a very sizable sum of money so that that's one of the key innovations another person I would mention is Frederick Macmillan who is the grandson of the founder of the House of Macmillan. Frederick Macmillan was the great proponent of the idea of network price. He he wrote a a privately published memoir, which is very very difficult to get hold of because it was only privately published. That's both a memoir of the network agreement and the Times book war in in the first decade of the 20th century. Macmillan really developed the Macmillan publishing brand. Macmillan had had some great luck, not least discovering Lewis Carroll which they made a great fortune out of. They also set up the journal Nature, which is the current foundation of their prosperity, even now. So early editions of Nature? Early editions of Nature, much sought after. They also published a lot of serious non-fiction, Alfred Marshall's Principles of Economics, a man called Paul Grave, who they produced in the Encyclopedia of Economics, uh, who was the brother of the slightly more famous F.T. Paul Grave, who was an anthologist. So and they still use that name, uh, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Those are the great pre-1900 innovators. To bring us into the modern yeah. conception. Yeah. Yeah. They allowed the idea that publishing is something that can start from small beginnings, because Heinemann, who started in 1890, by 1900 he was regarded as the coming man. He was a member of the Publishers Association Council, he represented British publishing abroad because of these languages. He was quoted in the press very widely. He had this lovely sobriquet of being described as a young voluptuary. He, like many publishers, he was interested in good living. Fish dish called Sol Heinemann named after him. But I think Heinemann created a model that you could have a small publishing house set up by one individual who had some vision mm. and had some new ideas and Heinemann showed it could be done. And he was succeeded by people like Grant Richards who set up in 1997. He was more interested in literature than business but he was a very shrewd judge of, of authorship and he created the world's classics for instance, reprint editions of key books. Richards really created the model of, of children's books with colour illustrations in special formats. So if we can go to the uh, the world classics, yeah. we'll set well, those apart. Oh, cheap. Richards was only one of the people who had that idea that you could actually sell good literature cheaply to the masses. Dent. Dent did this with Temple Classics yeah. and later with Everyman's Library, although that is after World Classics. The idea of World Classics was that there were certain key books that every educated person should read mm. and they should be available in nicely printed editions for either six pence or a shilling, which was a lot less than the standard price of six shillings. And everyone jumped on the bandwagon 
Because they didn't have to pay uh, it copyright. Was essentially out of copyright, yeah. although Collins did republish copyright editions. In Colin and Dent's case, they actually had print works, so they were able to keep their presses running and therefore make a bit of money. But Richard's idea, I think, was quite distinctive. Eventually, because of his bankruptcy, it was sold to Humphrey Milford, who eventually took it off to the University of Grass. Yeah. And they're still published. The worst classics still exist as a very substantial. Uh, list of uh, Oxford University Press and has been since nineteen oh five. What would set those apart from what Dent was doing then? I think the, the, sele- the selection of authors. It was very broad ranging. It had a lot of. Uh, Richards was quite interested in European culture, so there's a lot of uh, European works and translation there. Um, format too. The, the, uh, he pioneered distinctive formats. They're quite small and dumpy in the original which was like the, uh, the children's books. Um, this was sort of a pocket edition. Whether or not it was influenced by Koshnitz, the German mm-hmm. publisher of English language texts, one can speculate. But I, I would see it as a distinct line between Grant Richards and Penguin books being invented 30 years later. Again, making valuable literature and non-fiction available to the general public in a format that is appealing. Yeah, it was also understanding that there was a new emerging market. For most of the 19th century, book buying was very much an elite occupation. Upper middle classes, books were either borrowed or bought. They were bought for country house libraries. They were bought largely for show. You can see it in the form of bindings, showpiece bindings. There was an emerging lower middle class, the, the kind of Kipps public, if you like. Richards was always up for new ideas. Probably the most collectible, certainly the most expensive of the books he published is The Dublin Arts by James Joyce. You know, it has to be a four or five figure purchase, I guess, by the dollars or pounds. So he had an eye for a good yeah, author. Yeah, he had an eye for a good author and a good idea. But it was a very Catholic list. I don't I mean Catholic with yeah, the board. Yeah, you know, he published books on hobbies, he published books and anecdotes, very serious books like The Rank Trousers of Philanthropist, but he also published quite frivolous books. And he pioneered things like travel guides, the Muirhead travel guides, which later become the classic currency of travel guides were started with, with Richard. If you like, he's a sort of John the Baptist figure. He, he sort of comes up with lots of ideas, and he remains active until the 30s. Last uh, imprint was the Richard's Press, which was eventually funded by Martin Secker of Settle, Settle Moorberg. So that's a great innovator. Was there anything distinctive about the design or the oh, manufacture yeah, yeah. of them? The children's books were very distinctive. It's a format that became very familiar later with Warren's children books, particularly the books of Beatrix Porter. Technically, they are produced by what's called four back one. So the, the back of the sheet is printed in four colours and the front of the sheet is printed in only black. So that when the sheets are folded up, you actually get a colour illustration facing text. It had existed in a form, but no one had used four back one. And he went to a printer who was, in fact, not a book manufacturer to produce these. They pr- produced posters? Or were, they, exactly, so they were commercial colour printers. And the range of titles, I suppose the most notorious title, although it shouldn't be, is Little Black Sambo. Because it isn't racist? It isn't racist, and it also isn't about black people. Sambo is actually Indian, Asian Indian rather than, mm. than African. In fact, there were companion titles. There was Little Yellow Wheelow and Little White Alice as well, so um, part of the series. But the dumpy books, of which there are about 40, are well worth collecting. 
as a series. Also, he produced rather beautiful anthologies. And so what I'm looking at is... A Hundred Games and Pastimes for Children. Oh, yes. Which Lucas actually wrote. Quite a lovely uh, cover with guilt. It's re- reminiscent of Kate Greenaway, I think, is, is one would say. It's gilt with four colours, directly printed on cloth, nicely produced, good illustrations. It was sold at six shillings as a Christmas present, whereas other publishers who were producing these kind of beautiful books, the most famous ones being the Hodder series of Christmas books, sold at two guineas. Richards did produce a Christmas annual for two years, which again was copied by other publishers. I think the remarkable thing about Richards is the number of fields in which he operated and operated successfully and brought new ideas to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can trace a lot of the trends in 20th century publishing from ideas he had, a very significant figure in the history of what books looked like in the 20th century. Hmm. Okay, so we've looked at some of the series. He was innovative with the use of gilt and colour on mm-hmm. cloth. Mm-hmm. There was Heinemann, there was Grant Richards. Mm-hmm. Is there someone that comes next? Does it work that way? It does to an extent. Uh, every mm-hmm. generation seems yeah. to have a key innovator. Although people overlap, one of the great traditions is that people enter the book business, learn the trade from other people. You know, the, the enormous number of people one could choose, and I won't go into detail, people like Trullis, for instance. Yes. Who gorgeous colour and, and those are undervalued, I Very think. Very much. Tipped in uh, colour... Yeah, handmade paper. Yeah. Why do you think they're undervalued? Well, because there's a lot of around. There, there are some rare and sought-after ones. For instance, Jessie M. King yeah. as an illustrator. And some of her books are quite expensive. In fact, the Glasgow Boys, of which Jessie King was a Glasgow girl, but they, she was associated with that art movement. Fuller's, because he happened to be in Scotland, had those people at his doorstep, and therefore he was able to engage them. One of the, the themes for collectors would be famous artists who designed books before they were famous. Rennie Mackintosh, for instance, before he became the great architect of the Glasgow School of Art, designed covers for Blackie. Anyone who knows Mackintosh's work can look at it and say, that's a book by Mackintosh. One of the connections that isn't often made is that Rennie Mackintosh's, one of Ray Mackintosh's greatest buildings, Hill House was built for Walter Blackie. Blackie only knew of Macintosh because Macintosh had worked at his company designing book covers. One day, the story goes, uh, Blackie said to Macintosh, I want a new house, can you design it for me? And Hill House is a result, which is probably the most famous honourable house in the world. Macintosh designed everything down to the window latches and the door hangers. <laughs> uh, and is it, is it open? It's, it's open to the public, oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, so that's one of the interesting byways of publishing history. Talking about the covers in the 1890s, there's the private presses, yeah. Charles Ricketts, who's yeah. a fabulous yeah. designer. Oh, and, and, and Golden Cockerel, when you're standing Morrison, and a whole range of, of people. Let it be said that art books of that sort... Private presses? Private presses are not in the mainstream of publishing. They've been influential. They, they've been influential in design, I guess. I mean, John Lane is a, is a sort of an example of a cross between a private press and a commercial. Yeah, yeah, up to a point, I think that's true. With the limited editions? And yeah, one of did much the same. But it was, I think it was never mainstream in publishing. They were never very large businesses, by almost by definition. So, obviously, they're very collectible because they're rare, and there are beautiful things that were being done. For instance, I had a debate about whether I should see any 
anything about the Kelmscott Press in, in the your book. book yeah. But actually, if you look at Kelmscott, although it was enormously influential, of course, as Morris was, it was a tiny, tiny publisher. The books were not sold through bookstores by, by subscription. By subscription. Yeah. From the collector's point of view, vastly important in terms of the history of publishing, actually quite marginal. Although bringing back the book beautiful and the, yeah. the attention to detail yeah. and yeah. typography and, and you, you can see links with Thomas, for instance, he was producing mm. beautiful books for the mass market. So in terms of collecting, you, you want to find something that's cheap, that's underappreciated. Yeah. And fullest, 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 and you would know. Yes. It seems to me to be an area that, that could. Yeah. There are collectors. There's a very good bibliography produced by the British Library, for instance, which yeah. lists everything that's known about Fuller. There are active collectors of Fuller, mm. but uh, there's room for a few more. Okay. Quite a few more. So we've got Grant Richards, mm. who took the crown from him, would you say? I, I would say, you know, obviously the great disruption of the First World War changes a lot. So key publishers who emerged just at the beginning of the First World War is Stanley Unwin, who bought George Allen, which had been set up by Ruskin mm-hmm. as the publishing house to propagate Ruskin's views. Ruskin was part owner, wasn't he? And, and until, until he died, and then he, he left the company to George Allen, who was effectively his son. For many years, George Allen and Unwin operated out of Ruskin House, which is just around the corner from where we're now speaking. Stanley Unwin is a very interesting figure because he sets out First of all, to take a company that had really slipped into decrepitude um, and was being very badly run. The, the great book from George Allen, again, the most collectible book, is um, Wren City Churches, which is published about 1900 with the most amazing title page, which is just a riot of art decor. So nothing to do with Wren, Wren's architecture, which is no. a beautiful book, yeah. and wonderful illustrations of Wren City Churches. But really, by 1914, when Stanley Owen comes along and buys it, and it became Allen and Unwin, interesting enough, not Unwin and Allen. Yeah, yeah. A publisher without an ego? Uh, no, Stanley had an enormous ego. Yeah. It was a very strange ego, because he liked to paint himself as a serious ascetic who wasn't interested in the frivolities of life, but who published serious books for serious people. And Bertrand Russell, of course. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course the most collectible Alan in London books are the works of G.R.R. Fulton Tolkien. You, now you mentioned this, that he wasn't particularly thrilled, it was his nephew yeah, or his son yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, convinced yeah, him, right? Yeah, Rainer Unwin, who, who stood with us. You know, he was a, a, a young sort of boy who was given the manuscript and read about elves and hobbits for the very first time, so these books are amazing and you got published them. We're jumping ahead about 20 years. Ahead, or so, yes, right? so this is the, the 1930s. But until then, Stanley Unwin really publishing serious philosophy, serious economics, serious political comment. A number, you know, again, that's a company which is much underrated. What's the uh, innovation? Uh, the innovation is the way the books look because they're dressed quite seriously. They are typographic jackets, if you can find jackets on them rather than illustrated jackets. They are attempting to educate the public. They, they don't take any prisoners in. What do you mean? They, they're, this is serious scholarly work yeah, that they yeah, want to put yeah. in front of the public? But also to be quite controversial. Um, Stanley Edmund always regretted that he wasn't allowed to publish Mary Stopes' Married Love, for instance. Lesbian? His fellow directors disapproved of the subject matter. Stanley wanted to publish it and 
almost years later said that he lost out a million and a half sales because of it. People who remember him say that he was vain, opinionated, stuffy, and not much of a sense of humour. And, and, and interesting enough, he disapproved of later innovations, although he was quite individual himself. He really didn't have any time for Alan Lane and the Penguin books a bit later. I interrupted you though, yeah. you'd, uh, you'd mentioned that you thought that his, these books are underrated, why is yeah. that? I think because a lot of them are non-fiction, a lot of them are deal with subjects that were very fashionable, very important in the 20s and 30s, and not be so now. But underrated in the sense that the content of these books... I, 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 think, I think that's it. The, the, yeah. These are books that shape public ideas. And Stanley Unwin was, for instance, the very first publisher who understood the value of other media. Grant Richards, interesting enough, was the first publisher we can trace who actually sold film rights. Oh, that's right. Did uh, Unwin jump on the BBC? When yeah. Well, as yeah. soon as the BBC was set up as the British Broadcasting Company in 1924, yeah. Unwin talked to Caesar John Reith and said, you need a publisher. And he signed up an exclusive deal with the BBC, which was incredibly foresighted. Yeah. And he also regularly appeared on the BBC as the person giving the talk about books. So, so uh, in terms of collection, the first BBC book hmm. that Unwin would have produced might be interesting. I think that there's a whole there's a whole range of books he did. Uh, typically, the BBC their great stock in trade was the 15 minute talk. The Reith lectures too. Right? Well, the Reith lectures are much much later. Oh, they're, they're, they're after John Reith died. And uh, BBC would would broadcast every day a 15 minute talk from prominent intellectual hmm. who would be. Anyone, I say, from Bertrand Russell to, well, in fact, if you look at the luminaries of this very college in the period, people like J.Z. Young, the anatomist, J.P.S. Holder, type of people who would talk about issues of the day. And those talks would be gathered in books and published by, by Alan and Unwin. The actual collections, or would they do individual? They did both. Soft they did cover. individual soft cover pamphlets and yeah. collections. And okay. Eventually, the BBC set up its own publishing arm and published its own. Uh, but Unwin was always, he, he, he was quite brave as a publisher. I recount in the story how he um, took on a controversial book, which was thought to be obscene, A Young Girl's Memory. He approached the director of public prosecutions and asked if he'd be charged if he published it. And the famous telegram of filth, my dear sir, filth, was the response to that. So he published it with a sticker inside saying this book is only intended to members of the medical, legal and sociological professions, which of course is a classic way to sell a book to most people. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I, I think he's an interesting figure. He, he also wrote, a, I mean, probably the most famous, famous book about publishing. Exactly, yeah, so yeah, The Truth um, About Publishing. And, and also The Truth, his own biography, autobiography, The Truth About Publishing, which yeah. is very revealing. Thinking of other people, the key person post-First World War is Jonathan Cape. I think Cape is a new publisher for, for two reasons. One, he has new ideas and he's in tune with a different, a changing market, the post-war market. What new ideas? The story of, of Cape is quite interesting because he, he starts working as a book trade salesman. He is the first publisher who is perhaps more interested in marketing than in the actual production of books. He realises that you've got to get your books recognised by the public if they're going to be bought. Mm. So he spends a lot of time on getting his books written about, getting them reviewed, mm. uh, getting his authors well known. 
and that's very much his his own background. He wasn't a very literary person. Mm. You have a very concise but unflattering description of him. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Rupert Hart Davis described him as the meanest old bastard I ever met, and that seems to be the prevailing opinion. Uh, he was out and out a businessman. He, he wanted to be a publisher to be made money. He also came from a lower middle class background. That's probably why he wasn't let on the board of the company that he started. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, he, he was patronised by the Bloomsbury's, as people of that background were. There is a suggestion that when he set up in business, which he did just a hundred meters from his office, just across the road from Gower Street, he did so deliberately to caucus Nuka to the Bloomsbury people. It's good enough incentive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Because this wasn't the publishing district yeah. until Kate came along. Kate created the Bloomsbury publishing district. The most collectible book of all of Kate's is a very strange book indeed, which is his very first book, a reprint of a book, a late 19th century book on travels in Arabia called Arabia Deserta, written by C.M. Doughty. And that was published by Cambridge University Press and was well regarded as a a travelogue. Like Heinemann, 30 years before, he staked his entire business on this one title. And uh, where it was innovative was he did everything that people said he shouldn't. It was a book that was going to cost nine guineas when it was published, which was an enormous sum of money in 1920. Mm. It was in two volumes. It had a very elaborate presentation. It had a folded colour map and a pocket in the back, lots of illustrations, beautifully bound. And had it failed, he would have failed. And in fact, until about three weeks before publication, there were only 30 copies subscribed, which meant advance orders from the book trade. So it looked as if it was going to be a disaster. Luckily, and Jonathan's sort of marketing player saw him through. He, he actually um, sort of pushed the book in all the media. Well, one of the tricks he said was he would only give review copies to journalists who would guarantee review. review. Yes, um, yes. And that worked. Um, and it, it sold, it went into a reprint. It was the foundation of his business. Mm. Interesting enough, it was never reprinted after he sold out the second reprint and his publishing moved on to a very distinctive literary mould after that. Mm. W.H. Davies was big uh, early on. Yeah, but but also, you know, the, the biggest discovery was Ernest Hemingway. Discovery or oh, well he bought the he bought right. the rights. He bought the rights. He was smart enough to go he went to the States. He went a to lot. the States a lot and he yeah. had the, the sense to spot Hemingway. And he was good at spotting trends. There was a very distinctive sense of producing beautiful books. Yeah, I, um, I mentioned the, the W.H. Davies. Yeah. I picked up some early editions of, mm-hmm. of his work and there's lovely, it's almost handmade paper yeah, underneath yeah, the yeah. book jacket on, yeah. uh, on the board. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and little things, that the sort of tricks that publishers use to make books look good that don't cost very much money by using printed uh, tits on labels for titles rather than brassing the titles on the spine. Really quite sober jackets, whereas at that period, up jackets were becoming a little bit brighter. Illustrations, you know, Matthew and her colour illustrated jackets, you know, for instance, the first edition of Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence, with a very striking hmm. colour illustrated jacket, which makes that a quite well, a very desirable book because, of course, it's. Because of the title, but. Well, it was also withdrawn when oh, okay. it was tried for obscenity, so if you can get a jacketed copy of the Rainbow, you probably have a, 
a very rare thing indeed, um, because Methuen didn't support Lawrence. They withdrew it? They withdrew it, yeah. yeah. What about the jackets? Who came up with the first really colourful jackets? This is very interesting because it's a, an area that needs to be researched because dust jackets appear in the middle of the 19th century and there's simply that, there's simply covers, paper, blank paper, paper covers. Mm. Illustrated jackets, as opposed to illustrations actually printed on to, to bindings. Yes, right, because we, we sort of go from, from the gilt engraving almost yeah. on covers, and then, then there's colour on the yeah. cloth, yeah. and then there's plain wrappers, mm-hmm. and then colour wrappers. Yeah, yeah. And you get variations, chatter on windows quite early on, when they had Mark Twain and later R.L. Stevenson, had typographic jackets that reprinted press comment. Yes. But they also used what's called vignetting, where they actually cut out a hole on the jacket to allow an image that was on the cloth to show through. Uh-huh. Those are quite desirable if you can find them, because yeah. mostly they're discarded. And, and obviously they're subject to tearing yeah, yeah, yeah. more so. Than and, and they weren't very strong. They were simply, you know, nowadays when jackets are laminated, mm. they're, they're much more... Durable. The lamination of jackets doesn't actually appear until the mid-1950s. First colour jackets then? First colour jackets, probably about 1905. There may be earlier ones. But no one's known for that. No. Fullers, who we mentioned earlier, do halfway house between jackets. They're actually attached to the spine. They're glued to the spine. Something that's taken from France. Of course, you get the sort of yellowback novels, the sort of railway novels, and do have wood blocks on the covers. Colour jackets, you know, a lot of Blackwoods novels. Nelson pioneered had brilliant artwork on their jackets. Um, that's because they had the colour presses. They um, owned them, yeah. They owned them. Really, if we're looking at jackets, the great innovator in jacket design is Victor Collect. Yes, but it's not uh, so much multicoloured, is it? It's just no. very bold yellow and yeah, maroon. Yeah. And that's Stanley Morrison. That's Stanley Morrison, who, who was the topographer, but the idea is Victor. Victor loved shouting, he loved making a fuss. If you look at his press advertising, which I don't think Stanley Morrison had anything very much to do with, you can see Victor's ideas. There's, there's an interesting sociological element at play here, because yellow says cheap. There are some quite interesting myths in the book trade which still persist. I can remember when I was a young publisher, a senior sales rep at Longman, telling me absolutely green books don't sell. You know, never ever use green cover, green books don't sell. I used to say, why? And he said, because they don't. And no reason. No reason, but green books don't sell. Well, but yellow is associated with cheap, what's called railway fiction, because they were always yellow-backed. Therefore but Gallant's focused on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Gallant was a great rule-breaker. He was iconoclastic in the best sense. Mm. He starts as a public schoolmaster, unbelievably, <laughs> at, at Repton College, for a young Jewish man to teach at the leading Church of England public school in the UK. Being Victor, he taught socialism is not the thing to teach at an establishment <laughs> Church of England school in 1919. But he's quite an interesting figure because of course his uncle was Israel Goliath, was Professor of English here. The editor of, of the, the Temple. Ten, the, the Temple Classics, the great literary popularizer. So Victor, we're talking about jackets then yeah. and collectibles. Yeah. What should one go after there? Okay, for a collector, you've got to be interested in the man and his mission. Victor was a man with a mission. What's collectible, first of all, are the works of Dorothy L. Sayers. Detective. Detective fiction. Mm. Again, it's a very unlikely friendship because she was an arts conservative and Victor was a real radical. Victor, in 1936, created the Left Book Club, which 
was driven by his own passion for radicalization, for education, for anti-fascism. Partly, I think there's a good collection to be made of the Latin club editions, which were beautifully produced. They weren't yellow and purple. They were orange. They were orange, yeah. Yeah, Soft cover, too. Soft cover, yeah. Yeah. All of them? As far as I know, you know, because they were reprints, effectively. It was a way of extending the backlist. Yeah. Because Victor was very good, you know, was a man of passion, but he was also big. He was also a businessman. He wanted to sell as many books as he could, and he sold. They're still around in large quantities, but as far as I'm aware, there's no bibliography, so you'd have to hunt in old catalogues to find out what was there. And you'd want to get 1936 editions yeah, if you yeah, could? Yeah, there were special things. Left Book Club grew into, there were theatre guilds associated with it, so there were plays that were published, uh-huh. special edition plays. Playbills you could get. Playbills, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, as far as I know, is an untouched field. I, I know no one who collects. Yeah, one of the things I hope the book, my book will spark off is people to pick up. You know, we, we, we jumped a little bit ahead with, with uh, Victor, but yeah. Faber, who begin at the end of the, the 20s. 20s. It's interesting, uh, you mentioned that Faber and Cape got together yeah. for lunch, yeah. both yeah. looking for money and yeah. they realised the other didn't have it, but they remained on good terms. Oh yeah, very different people, because whereas Cape was quite a hard and not very pleasant individual, Geoffrey Faber, by all accounts, was a lovely, lovely person. You know, and again... A scholar. A scholar, very interesting, because of course he took a very unlikely vehicle to create his publisher, because Faber Maguire the antecedent, and then again, collectibles to get the Faber and Guire in print, Faber and Faber, because there's some very key titles, so he's like, because was a scientific publisher. The scientific publisher, and nursing, nursing yeah, it was a sale of the nursing mirror that actually allowed Geoffrey Faber to buy Guire out, and of course, the most famous associate with Faber is that with T.S. Eliot. Yeah, and Eliot was chosen because he was a banker and was yeah. quite good at it. Yeah. There's an artistic, there's a, there's literary, and business... There is a terrible myth that said that T.S. Eliot was only a bank clerk while he was writing The Wasteland. Not true. T.S. Eliot was actually a very senior banker. He was head of the foreign exchange department at Lloyds Bank. So, you know, he, he wasn't just a bank clerk working behind a bank counter. He was a serious financial brain. Mm-hmm. Of course, he he only worked in banking to pay for his his poetry. Very shrewd move, though. Eh? Yeah. One of the things I lament is the fact there is no history of favourite paper. There, there, there will be a history of favourite paper, of course, I'm not sure. The innovation there? In many ways, you can see favour as an outgrowth of what Kate was trying to do. But I think the innovation there is the serious publishing of high literature, but also the spotting of new talent, which Elliot was very good at. Like Grant Richards. Yes, you know, the, the, the fact that Stephen Spender, Louis McNeese, or Auden. Or Auden. Yeah. Where I think Faber were important was the creation of the idea of a subcultural milieu. You know, the Bloomsbury set had been here, and of course they had their own publishing house with the Rural Press. Yes. Probably one of the most collectible books about publishing is Richard Kennedy's The Boy at the Rural Press, limited edition. 1972. Yeah, still hilarious. And it, there's some lovely drawings. Lot wonderful it. drawings. And wonderful stories uh, about being sent out by Mrs. W. There's no distinct innovation that Faber did in the look of books or the type of books. But what they did was, if you like, bring together strands that, say, Unwin and Cape and Michael Joseph, stuff later, had done and brought them together with a unique editorial intelligence. And I think that's what T.S. Eliot was. He set a very distinctive stamp 
on the types of books. He was such an important poet himself. Yeah, yeah. But he was also a very generous person because he was very interested in discovering and helping young poets, which is not something that necessarily typifies literary life. He actually had a mission to discover good writers mm. and make them available. Come to think of it, I think the only innovation I can think that Famous had was this, this printing the date of publication in Roman. Can you call that an innovation? Yeah, yeah it's terribly annoying. The story goes that it was to stop people thinking books were out of date. It's in relation uh, to Walter Hutchinson, who wouldn't print dates in his books at all. But Which is maddening for the collector, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, all of this comes up to talking about Alan Lane and Penguin. Alan Lane, I think, is the most significant figure. First of all, because, interesting enough, his name isn't Alan Lane. That's right, it was Williams. It was Williams. It was only when his Uncle John said, I'll take young Alan, my nephew, into the business. Yeah, kind of a country bumpkin. Yeah. You know, he never went to university. He he left school at a young age. He wasn't a very literary person. And, in fact, it was always said that Alan Lane never read books. But great charm, obviously. Enormous charm. Enormous vivacity and energy. Great sense of fun for people who remember him in his heyday. his last few years were quite sad and tragic because he, he had this business of falling out with his own brother very badly. Yeah. But certainly in his heyday, he had energy and confidence and a sense of we can change things, we can make things happen. And also, um, again, this theme of bringing uh, good, important work to yeah, the masses. Yeah. Uh, one mustn't lose sight that he wanted to be rich. Very ambitious. And he, he was. And, and when I we had the study day to launch the book at the British Library, I chose to talk about what I called Alan Lane's other trial, which was the case over the Whispering Gallery. It's just Pearson, the embarrassment. Yeah, and the fact he was hung out to dry by his fellow directors, who referred to him always as Young Lane, and our junior director. You know, it's interesting that he never brought any ill will towards Hesketh Pearson. Oh, he continued to publish it. Yeah, didn't yeah he? and, and yeah. actually, by all accounts, they were good friends. Hesketh Pearson is a very interesting character, too. He wrote lots of biographies. Yeah, uh, and I think a collectible book is actually the Whispering Gallery because mm. of I- its association. There aren't that many copies around because it was withdrawn. The story being that it was supposedly the diaries of a British ambassador. Rod. Who, who denied it. And there was a scandal in the, in the press. Yes, it, it was the, the power of the Daily Mail. If you're going to criticise anyone in this country and their name is Harmsworth, you better be pretty sure you're on firm ground because the Daily Mail will still go after you. In many ways it's great fun and it shapes Lane's character. Yes, this idea that I want to control things because otherwise I'm going to be embarrassed. You know, he had this idea and Penguin, it wasn't a great sort of coup de foudre. You know, there were other books around and an interesting collection could be made of books that weren't Penguin, you know, that contributed towards the idea of the, the six well, paperback. The Albatross. The Albatross books, yeah. He just copied what the Albatross was doing. Up to a point. The German. You could argue that the French had a similar idea of Louis de Porches. Any of the Tauschnitz books, there's a Tauschnitz sitting on the shelf over there. So the idea had been around. I think what Lane did was make the publishing brand important for the very first time. Not just the series title, but the whole imprint. The imprint was as equally as important as the title of the book and the yeah. author. Yeah, you know, there was this uniform dressing right from the beginning, the very first ten penguins with the colour coding for the genre, with the very firm banding. The fact that the books look distinctive. They were green, they were orange, they were... One each of... Yeah, uh, the for the genre, yeah. I think Ariel was blue, non-fiction. Ariel was 
number one. And more so, of a but there's also Linklater's Poets Pub, there's an Agatha Christie. They're not scarce. How many between sixty and ninety thousand? Of each yeah. of the yeah. first ten yeah. I would say the most collectible thing is the special box of reprinting the first ten that was done to mark the fiftieth anniversary. Sixtieth anniversary. Fifty? Fifty. There is a special box with all the books in them. In fact, I, if I can reveal the secret, the illustration in my book of the first ten are actually the reprints because they, they, they look better. But that is highly collectible. Um, and now, so that would be 1985. Yeah. More, more collectible than the first ten? Yeah, I wonder why. Uh, because it's a beautiful presentation. He is a collectible that any penguin collector would kill to have. We're looking at a van with penguin on this, what do you call it here, a lorry? Yeah, there is of course a penguin collector society, very big and very strong, and there are people who collect penguin memorabilia. The, the most desirable peng piece of penguin memorabilia is a ceramic penguin that was used to mark the 50th anniversary. We haven't discussed colophon very much, you know, there's a whole subject about the art of publishers, emblems and colophon. I'm speaking with Ian Stevenson, whose recent book titled Bookmakers, British Publishing in the 20th Century, your jacket is, is mm. a whole series of the colophons. Yeah, we, we've actually offered a prize for anyone who can, can directly identify all of them. All of them? I cheated a little bit because I used the less familiar version of, for instance, the Chateau and Windus one is not one that people would normally associate with Chateau and Windus. Okay. And there are one or two in there. The tough ones? The, yeah, tough ones. the yeah. one I like, which would appeal to a Canadian, is Alvin Redman, who's okay. the Red Indian. <laughs> so where yeah. are we now? Well, we're, we're talking penguin? about penguins. Yes, collectability yeah, okay. of the memorabilia yeah. and the first ten. The, there are two types of penguins that I collect myself. One is the very early puffins, the full colour 16 page lithograph children's books that start very early in the Second World War that are the most beautiful illustrated books that deal with nature. Now, there are wartime ones, our overseas forces and there's a airplane recognition book. But they're landscape books. They're beautiful because they were hand-drawn onto lithographic stones originally. They're not very expensive, but they are beautiful and I think highly collectible. So these are the early puffins? Very early puffins. And how can you identify that? There's a list in the Penguin Collector's Guide, which is indispensable to anyone who collects penguins because okay. it lists everything. They're highly popular, but they sell between 5 and 10 pounds or ten or fifteen dollars when you see them. Condition is very important and because they're children's books. The other books which I think are, are neglected are the Alan Lane Christmas books. They're signed too, aren't they? Yeah. And yeah. they quite often come with Christmas cards. I think the most desirable one is The Trial of Lady Chatterley, which was published in nineteen sixty before the official account was published, which is signed by Alan Lane. A celebration, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, it's almost the last Christmas book. He does another. He does another couple. Many of them are just beautiful examples of printing. Because Alan Lane was interested in production, for instance, one of them is the very first book ever set by computer-controlled typesetting. Yes. It's just a way of showing how it was, could be done in the way of the future. They are private press books, effectively. They are printing a private circulation. The print runs a couple of thousand at most. They, yeah. The early ones are rare because they were five or six hundred. Fewer friends, I guess. Well, he, he, he also had less money. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he paid for them himself. I found one in a second-hand bookshop, lamentably long gone in, in Exmouth Market in, in London, which uh, I bought for a pound. As I paid for it, the Alan Lane Christmas card fell out. And the bookseller said, I won't charge you for that. <laughs> 
decent album. Yeah. So they're around. They're around. Yeah. But I don't think, even now, I don't think they achieve the prices that they should achieve given their interest and who they're from. They're quite an eclectic selection. The King Penguins we mentioned, they're yeah. lovely little yeah. books. Uh, yeah, things like the Penguin Music Scores. You know, I, I'm not aware of anyone collecting those particularly. Also, there are penguins in other languages. There's Italian mm-hmm. penguins and French penguins. So, finally then, Paul Hamlin? Paul Hamlin, in my view, is unjustly neglected. Again, an outsider, like Heinemann. Yeah, a bit like Lane. A German by birth, but although he lived in Britain most of his life. His father was a paediatrician uh, who came to this country in 1932. Paul was of the last half of the 20th century, the publishing genius who wanted to produce beautiful books for ordinary people. Again, the same theme, isn't yeah, it? All yeah. the way through. Yeah. I think Hamlin is interesting because he did things that people said were impossible. He produced colour throughout books very cheaply. He ignored the book trade. He sold through Woolworths and other department stores. Again, echoes of Alan Lane. Hamlin, I think, because he reinvented the business progressively, he, he would create companies and then sell them, and then create another company. And, and make sell huge them. money, too. Make huge money, um, yeah. first person. But he, you know, he, and he was a, was a very engaging character. Quite shy man. And yet he showed up in a... Yeah, Pink Rolls Royce. Yeah. In the, the, the green polka dots. So, yeah, partly that was because he wanted to make a splash. Did he do the printing in, in Eastern in Europe? In Eastern Europe and then in China. He was the first. Oh, he was the first. He was the first. He set up a, a, an operation called Mandarin Books. So what about collectability of his stuff? I think a lot of people would say, oh, the books on fashion, the books on food. If you go to the Guardian website, I've done one of their presentations on publishing the 20th century, oh. and they allowed me to illustrate some Hamlin book, search under me. Okay. Uh, you'll find it there. If you're looking at the essence of the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Hamlin books on design, design, uh, um, design of the books, they're thought through, they're, they're well designed, and of course the books on fashion and so on are very much of their time. Psychedelic, yeah. uh, Carnaby yeah. Street. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of. yeah, all that sort of stuff. But the things I think are most collectible, and aren't collected at all, are the things called the pickles, which are these anthology volumes of great literature that he produced with Charles Pick of Heinemann in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Basically, no one in publishing could make nicely produced literary books of a thousand pages work, and Hamden did. And they don't look cheap. You know, they were sold for £2.50, £3, something like that. So unbelievably cheap. But they're good paper, nicely printed, well-bound. And they're called the... The Pickles. How many I are they? Oh, I, I don't believe there's been a bibliography. 20? 50? Perhaps between 20 and 50. There's not an enormous quantity, but somebody needs to do the work. In fact, one of my long-term research aims is Paul Hamlin needs a biography. Oh. He is such a towering cultural figure of the late 20th century. And, you know, things like the Hamlin Foundation, which he created. The fact, if you go into the round reading room of the British Museum, when there isn't an exhibition of it, mm. it's filled with books. Paul Hamlin put the books in there. Okay. The old round reading yeah, room of yeah. the British Museum Library has got a library in it. Paul Hamlin suddenly went to the British Library and said, you've got an empty library. Um, tell me how many books you need and I'll write you a check. You know, he opera wouldn't survive in this country unless Paul Hamlin had underwritten Common Garden. You know, culturally he's a very significant figure. And quite a modest man. He, he is 
unjustly neglected and it needs to be reassessed. And I hope to do that. Well, we won't take any more of your time. Okay. We'll let you get down to that. I've been speaking with Ian uh, Stevenson, who, uh, among other things, is the author of a recently published book by the British Library entitled Bookmakers, British Publishing in the 20th Century. Thanks again. Good. Thanks.